Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 205 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday, June 28th, 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Happy birthday. Thank you, sir. Greetings from the far side of 5050. Also, it means I'm the same age as the uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie and mm-hmm. NPR. How about but that? that? That was true before you turned 50. That's true, but it, it, <laughs> this is true. But what I really mean to say is we're all 50. And uh, I like to, that's some pretty fun company. If I, if I, if I had planned appropriately, I would have had the Hawaii Five-O music ready to go right at the. Well, even right better the if you'd the had the, some Willy Wonka music. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, are you a fan? People either love or hate the, you know, the Gene Wilder movie. I love it. What do you think? I haven't seen it in a long time, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. That's good stuff. Gene Wilder's was uh, was really amazing. Indeed. So, um, speaking of things that are really amazing, um, we've got an amazing show lined up because we've got lots of good topics. Uh, should we do a quick run through? Sure, we can do. We can do. We uh, uh, we we got we got some some drone strikes. Boy, yeah, we have like this. Is, we've got some good sort of traditional core national security law discussions. Um, we got SCOTUS staying out of some things. We got me losing a bunch of cases. It's a, it's a, it's a good time. Just another day at the office. Boys. Another day at the office. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we'll talk about the uh, the airstrikes conducted in Syria and Iraq against Iranian or Iranian-affiliated targets, I should say, particularly Qatayib Hezbollah targets. Um, we'll connect that uh, at several points along the way to other other topics, including a couple of National Security Division roundup topics, actually. We'll take note of uh, what was reported in the New York Times uh, about an ongoing debate relating to redeploying forces, perhaps, to Somalia in the specific sense of training missions. We'll get into the details there. The window this debate provides into the larger discussion about what the rules are going to be for use of force outside of combat zones in a, in a confirmation that, of course, that debate is going to concern not just places like Somalia and Yemen going forward, but soon Afghanistan too. Um, and we will have a National Security Division roundup. We'll have a roundup of, of some litigation, some, some cert denials, some court of appeals for the armed forces, some Tenth Circuit. Uh, that ought to do it, Steve. I, I think that will keep us plenty busy. Uh, where should we start? I, I guess we got to start with uh, we got to start with the airstrikes, don't we? I think so. I mean, I'd I'd rather start there than you know, my 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 O for thirteen last Thursday and Friday, <laughs> in uh, in Bagani and uh, in elsewhere and Academy. Yeah. Um, all right. Wait. The, the thirteen. Are you adding up the the number of judges? Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you include if, oh, if if you include Briggs, I'm O for twenty one for the term. <laughs> I, 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 for the sake of your happiness, I recommend c- counting them collectively. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah. O, o and three is the same percentage as O and 21. This is true. But yeah, but just think about the percentage difference it'll make if you just get one. Like when DeGrom finally gave up two earned runs yesterday. Right, right. Uh, so when he said that's exactly what I was thinking about. Um, <laughs> His ERA uh, hey, ballooned the, to like 0. 0.69 or something. The important thing is he's pitching. And that's something we can all agree is wonderful. True. Uh, well, actually, for frivolity, how about we talk about just uh, Major League Baseball and all just the sort of the Don't twist my trade. arm. 
Yes, I know. <laughs> Can I talk you into that, Steve? <laughs> Maybe a Mets discussion? We could, we could talk about my, my road trip that I'm embarking upon tomorrow. I would definitely like to invite – when we get to it, I'm going to have a discussion about how you're going to spend time on that road trip. You and your dog. Drive, or drive Just you, I guess, right? Me, me, and me, and all of our stuff. Okay, yeah, and we'll we'll pull all you listeners in with advice for things Steve can do to pass the time. But first, the serious stuff, uh, yes. and we'll start on a very serious note. Uh, we have another instance of airstrikes against uh, targets associated, in particular, with Kataib Hezbollah, uh, a non-state organized armed group affiliated or associated with. Uh, Iran's uh, Republican Guard Corps. Um, I don't think there's any real serious dispute about that. Um, this is not the first time something like this has happened. Go back to February 25th, you have something somewhat similar. And these are all moments of national attention on something that on a day-to-day basis isn't getting a lot of national attention. And that is um, these small-scale episodic uses of force that go on between uh, Iran-backed or Iran-controlled entities in the Iraq and Syria theaters and U.S. personnel. Um, in this case, we're told by the Biden administration that there had been a series of uh, UAV-based attacks uh, or drone attacks of some kind uh, associated with Kataib Hezbollah uh, targeting what I think was described as locations where U.S. personnel were present. And this comes on the heels of separate reporting about uh, this group using drones to uh, launch them into the Kurdish-controlled region in the north of Iraq around Erbil. So it's easy to imagine that what's going on here is, uh, I'm going to call them KH, so I don't uh, ruin the pronunciation repeatedly. KH is using uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, in, in some way or fashion to do things that are impacting facilities that are probably joint lo, jointly located Kurdish and U.S. personnel in northern Iraq, among other things. And in this case, sort of on the heels of some of this recent event, these recent events, uh, we're told that DOD conducted airstrikes. So notice the, the weapons platform, which I've argued before in the show, really shouldn't drive the analysis. The fact that it was a pilot in the aircraft firing the missile versus an aircraft that did not have a pirate pilot on board or a pirate on board for that matter. Be, be, know, be, I mean. gonna, it would be quite a, it would be quite an airstrike if there was a pirate flying <laughs> the plane. A pirate on board. Oh my God. Um, so anyway, it's, like it's like the Martian, right? He's a space pirate. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, I just, are you, you're talking about Andy Weir's book, the Martian, right? And, and, and as, as, as made into a movie starring Matt Damon. So I just, to digress briefly, I just finished reading Hail Mary, the new uh, Andy Weir book. And uh, I'll maybe say something more during the frivolity, but let me just say here in case you're going to hang up by the time we get to that point, it's really good. And if you're like me, where you loved the Martian, did not love his follow-up Artemis and were reluctant to uh, sort of, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, were reluctant on that basis to get into Hail Mary, go ahead and get back into it. I think he's recaptured the Martian magic more than well enough. I think it's quite good. It's it's a very similar ride um, character-wise and science-wise. Um, if you dig that kind of stuff, if you like The Martian, you're going to like this. So go read Hail Mary and get ready for the movie. I don't know if they can cast Matt Damon again since it's not the same character, but it'd be <laughs> awesome if they did. Hey, maybe Ben Affleck will do it. Um, okay. Actually, that'd probably be pretty terrible. So back to the story. Um, the story is that 
KH was using unmanned aerial vehicles, and we had intel on, at least in, to some extent, what the command and control and supporting apparatus for launch and recovery, et cetera, was two locations in Syria, one inside Iraq, and President Biden ordered airstrikes uh, after the most recent round of attacks, ordered airstrikes attacking those facilities. So this every time something like this happens, we have a pretty similar discussion, but it's always important and worth spending time on. And, and always interesting. It's never a complete given. And in this case, that discussion will interact with the current legislative debate about possible repeal of the 2002 AUMF, which we talked about last time on the show. So let's talk, Steve, first about the domestic law aspects of this, and then we can pivot to the uh, international law aspects after that. Um, just like in February, the Biden administration for a second time has cited only its Article II authorities. It's uh, the, the constitutional authorities the commander in chief enjoys, in particular, to authorize the use of force in defense of U.S. personnel in a context in which they've been attacked. That's the framing. Uh, I think that's the exact right framing. Conspicuously does not cite, and not surprisingly, does not cite the 2002 AUMF as a separate and additional domestic law basis for this attack. That does stand in contrast to how the Trump administration would do it. They have cited the two they did cite the 2002 AUMF in somewhat similar circumstances. Um, so I guess, Steve, let me ask you first whether you think that does the shoe fit as a domestic law matter? It I mean, it depends on the window, right? Like it depends upon sort of how long we're willing to extend the chronological window of responding in self-defense to an attack, right? And whether what imminent what work imminence does in this context. Yeah, I guess so. My position on this is that this is a recurring pattern scenario. So I would right. distinguish a one-off scenario. Uh, one-off scenarios can come in really two shapes and sizes, uh, or really three, I suppose. It's a spectrum, but from nothing has happened, but you think something's going to happen in the future, and then you need to, it's just like an in international law, then you have these fierce debates about what the contours of imminence uh, are and, and whether they get stretched depending on the scale of the attack, et cetera. Um, in the one-off scenario, you, you begin with, there's no attack yet, but you might want to prevent or preempt it. Then there's the the attack is ongoing and it's happening now and I'm responding while the attack is still happening. And then there's the scenario in which the attack is over and you're considering whether, whether you're going to respond uh, in a situation in which you may or may not anticipate there'll be further attacks. Um, I don't think we're in any of those scenarios here. I think we're in the recurring series of attack uh, scenario in which there's been a multiplicity of these attacks, relatively low intensity, perhaps, but nonetheless, real uses of force over time. And of course, it gets more complicated than that, because it, as, as we noted, uh, in referencing the February use of force and earlier ones, uh, there's been back and forth. And at a certain point, boy, does the picture get really, really muddy. That said, if we begin, if we begin from the premise that KH has uh, repeatedly demonstrated that it can and will continue to use lethal force and military means against U.S. personnel, then I think the right way to frame it is simply, in it's, it's definitely an Article II self-defense scenario, in my opinion. And I think that by analogy to international law, there are necessity and proportionality questions to grapple with, but I don't think it requires an imminence inquiry. Uh, there, there does need to be 
in my version of this analysis, there does need to be a reason to think that the recurrent series is still ongoing, which I think is easy to an easy case to make here based but on got- the public record. I mean, I guess this is just maybe a longstanding source of disagreement between the two of us. It seems to me that if you don't have imminence, but you do have a recurring series of attacks where a group has shown that it is a threat to us over time, it seems like there's a pretty uh, um, straightforward way the Constitution contemplates for dealing with straight uh, recurring lines of attack from a particular hostile party, um, and that's to go to Congress. Like, I guess I, I had, you know, I harbor the increasingly the illusion that self-defense is supposed to be for circumstances in which legislative authorization is not realistically attainable. And yet, um, with every one of these, we keep going, we keep stepping further and further away from that limiting principle, right? And so, you know, it's just the, I recognize as I must, that this is not a dramatic shift in precedent, Bobby, right? That, that, that this is consistent with theories. I just think that like, this is exactly why this iterative, to me, erosion of, you know, Congress's responsibility and Congress's role in the war powers is so problematic when you go case by case. So, yeah, you're right that we've we've definitely disagreed on this one before. Let's let's go to an area of the domestic law analysis here that we probably do agree on. There are people, I gather, saying that, aha, look, uh, this is exactly the scenario for which we need to still have the 2002 Iraq AUMF. LOL, LOL, LOL. <laughs> so I'll take that as a, you are not buying it. I'm, I'm not buying that either. Uh, Surely you can't be serious. Yes. And stop calling me Shirley. Uh, I, I definitely don't think that uh, there is any need for a separate. Well, I, actually, I guess let me let me press you as I say this. For, from my perspective, it all makes sense to me. I think that the Article 2 authority... Uh, brings with it the the ability to engage in defense if our forces are deployed. If we're otherwise legally present somewhere and we're attacked, I think they can defend against a recurring series of attacks and otherwise. Um, And so I see no need for a separate AUMF to allow this. The forces are there because of the 2001 AUMF. That's the official position. Uh, We're there for the Islamic State or counter-Islamic State mission. Um, and as long as one has my view of Article Two, there, there's no need to to have a statute. I suppose. Tell me if this is right, Steve. If if one, if you were able to persuade a bunch of people that the Article Two authority for the recurrent series of attacks scenario uh, really shouldn't be there, that this is an area where, unless you're making an imminence argument, which would be a different kettle of fish, but if you're just making a hey, they keep doing this, so we're going to keep responding. Uh, type of argument, then maybe there is an argument that you need an AUMF. And I guess your position would still be like, sure, but the 2002 AUMF is, is not it? helping you. That's right. Yeah. I, I guess I think that if if I, I think I'd be a little more worried about it because I think that if the 2002 AUMF, well, this begs the question of what, what it's doing at all. And I think you That's and right. I share the view that it's, right. its functional scope has been exhausted. Yep. Um, at least in so far as we're not talking about a scenario in which, uh, the, you know, some Bathist resurgence or other toppling of, of the government. Saddam, Saddam comes back from the dead. Right. We think that the, that the O2 has sort of run its course long since. And so it, the existence of the O2, your position, I think, boils down to they need an AUMF for this, but the, the 2002 AUMF is not the AUMF you're looking for. Yes, these are not the AUMS you're looking for. Yeah, okay. That's there's some version of a show title there, perhaps. Um, okay, but then this brings us to the War Powers Resolution, doesn't it? Um, what's let's think through and see if we agree about how 
deployment into active hostilities or anticipated hostilities works where the formal framing is this is a recurring situation of ongoing uh, uses of force by KH. If, you, if your whole position is we, we are taking the position that they're going to keep attacking us, then does this trigger a WPR problem for the administration? Under the clock, under the calendar, you get uh, sure. your 48 days notice, you got 60 days, you're 48 supposed hours. to get out if you don't get yourself an AUMF or the equivalent. 48 hours, but yes, I th- yes, I would oh, say I so. Did I say 48 days? You did. <laughs> Is that a Freudian slip? <laughs> it might be. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yes, I think in my universe, yes, this would have required, and, and my understanding, Bobby, is that there was a notification, although I'm not sure if it's been public. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would assume there was, because I think yeah. that the calendar and the notification run kind of separate from one another. Yep. I, my view on the calendar issue, the the withdrawal after 60 days, uh, or 62 days, if you make the 48 hours, uh, if you milk it for all it's worth before you trigger the calendar with your notice, I think that the fact that they're lawfully deployed there under the 2001 AUMF for the anti-Islamic state mission, it actually presents an interesting interpretive issue under the WPR. If you're lawf- if you have statutory blessing to be in country X and then some third party engages you while you're there in a way that otherwise, let's just stipulate, would have created a calendar problem, do you lose your ability to be there under the original mission and the original statute? I think mm-hmm. the better answer, the best, better reading is no. Um, and it's it's a situation the WPR is not well drafted to address. But in that ambiguous uh, set of circumstances, I don't think you have to terminate your original statutorily authorized mission. I think that this is just an area where the WPR is not felicitously drafted. I think that's all right. Um, should we pivot to the international law issue then? Uh, sure. We, we've got lots of online commentary uh, about this issue. Uh, I think it's interesting in, in, in Twitterverse, just at least people I'm following, we don't tend to get a lot of engagement on the domestic law issues, but we do get loads of very interesting, really full-threaded debate on the international issues, in part because people from all over, at least those who are engaging in the English language Twitter sphere, uh, can engage each other there. So I've seen lots of interesting uh, positions being taken here. A lot of people uh, who are critical of the administration uh, had already been raising questions about the USAD Bellum aspects here. And then Iraq came out, over, I guess, over the past 12 hours, and the Iraqi government made a strong statement saying, that, hey, we didn't consent to this. We consider this a violation. Right. Um, so I guess, I guess we know that at least Iraq's not publicly saying they consented to it. Uh, it's entirely possible that's also true privately. It is possible it's not true privately. But let's assume that there's no consent. Uh, how, how do you see the analysis? Does, does the United States have an international law? You said Bellum problem here? I mean, is this, uh, is, do we get this, is this when we sort of go down the unwilling or unable? Well, that's where I was love, heading. That's love where path. I was heading. Uh, Take a a stroll with me down Unwilling or Unable Boulevard. Right. So so it presents an interesting factual question. Certainly no one from the U.S. government, as far as I've seen yet, has actually taken a position publicly, though maybe they've done it privately, that this is a scenario in which the Iraqi government, uh, at least in relevant part, is uh, either unwilling or unable to address the KH threat in some parts of the country. And so... Uh, any effort to just rely on the Iraqi government as the domestic sovereign to deal with this would have been uh, futile. And so they, they did not try to deal with it that way. 
Um, again, that's assuming that there wasn't actually sort of a private uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. We've seen that elsewhere in other contexts. Um, others have been debating necessity and proportionality. Um, our, our friend Ryan Goodman raised a question of whether, given that KH wasn't deterred by the last round, are you are you able to make a necessity argument here, where the where the underlying international law justification from just a basic self-defense law perspective is supposed to be not that you're retaliating and punishing, but that you are preventing and deterring the next round. Um, my own view is that the, the fact that your prior efforts failed, it, it can't be that that means you may never therefore try again. Um, in fact, I, I think that's clearly not the case. Um, it is interesting, it, as Ryan says, it'd be very interesting to see DOD's analysis of this. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm sure it boils down to some version of um, you know, it may take time, but insofar as we're able to do this while still uh, respecting other rules and considerations, including the political and diplomatic context, um, we're not simply going to sit back as they recurringly do this. And it doesn't mean that in, in the fact that we don't succeed in deterring them and stopping them in any one instance doesn't mean their hands are tied going forward. Um, do you see either a necessity or a proportionality problem here? Uh oh, I don't hear. Um, that's cause, that's because I had muted myself. What the nerve? Um, so I don't. I don't. I mean, who knows what we don't know, right? But I'll just say that, like at first blush, I don't think there's an obvious proportionality issue here. I do have necessity questions, which dovetail with my imminence concerns, right? Um, but you know, I. The, the day that we convince people that the real problem with U.S. airstrikes is international law, not domestic law, is a day where lots of other things are true. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not seeing a lot of fruitfulness in that line of argument. I mean, listen, it's important for people to, to preserve the argument. I think it is unfortunate the extent to which it just doesn't resonate at all in American political discourse. But, you know, I think there's a necessity problem here, but I think it's a necessity problem that largely dovetails with the absence of imminence. All right. So I guess, you know, so we'll just cite our earlier disagreement on that and uh, <laughs> pretty much covers the waterfront. I feel, um, like, I feel like every, every time one of these strikes happens, we just rehash the same, like, you know, you know, I just feel like we're, we're going further and further down a slippery slope. And you're like, but look, there's precedent. And this is consistent with how we've understood this power. And yeah. Well, and, I, and I, would, I just, on my own view, I actually, I affirmatively think these are the right answers. I think that where... Uh, an organized armed group is is engaging in these uses of force in a situation where we're lawfully in some particular location. I think these defensive authorities come with it. I don't think it follows that you therefore can try to topple the Iranian regime and launch a full scale invasion or otherwise do something disproportionate. Uh, but I see I see necessity, and it looks to me like uh, at least what the Biden administration has been doing has been proportionate. It's interesting to contrast it, of course, with uh, yes, you know, the the killing of Soleimani. Which yes. I'm I was not just, saying, as, as, as you're saying, you know, but it's a lot less. It's a lot less of an issue here than it was then. Yes. As you were saying, as you were talking about, you know, not toppling Iran, I was like, yeah, or assassinating one of its leaders, you know. Right. So, <laughs> so you know, the Biden administration will take a little bit of heat here because any use of, yes. I, I really believe that any use of force that's in any way novel uh, is you're going to take some heat. The question then becomes: All right, there's arguments being made, there are criticisms being made. Are they well taken or not? I think in this case, uh, I, I don't think they're well taken. I think we're on strong legal grounds. Uh, but you and I do see uh, some aspects of the recurring episodic strike scenario uh, differently. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this 
segues pretty well into an important New York Times article that ran on June 15th. Uh, let's see. I think that was Eric Schmidt. And uh, let me let me call it up here because I want to give proper credit. This was, this was Eric and Charlie Savage writing together. Um, and the headline was, or the, the tag was Pentagon Way's proposal to send dozens of troops back to Somalia. Um, this is a story that picks up the thread of something we talked about previously. Late in his <laughs> term in office, Trump withdrew uh, 700 or so uh, U.S. forces, which was, or actually 700 was the rough total of U.S. forces present on the ground in Somalia. I think about 100 stayed there. So they withdrew about 600, moved them to neighboring Djibouti and to Kenya. And in this, and, and since then, our special operations uh, training mission supporting uh, the, the forces in Somalia that we are supporting, the governmental forces, uh, I gather has operated by a combination of remote support and uh, flying people in for short visits. I don't know what the number of days or hours that's the limit, but there's definitely a limit. They have to get out again to stay consistent with the idea that we're not really there. Now, first, that account tells you something about the formalisms of deployment counts and where we are, quote, deployed and where we aren't, quote, deployed. That's a that's a whole thread that we could pull on and unwind a whole sweater, no doubt. Um, but the story is interesting in a couple of respects. First, it's really more a story, not so much about putting those uh, trainers back in for longer visits, although that's the main framing for the story that the editors or the whoever decides the New York Times put on it. The guts of the story are most interesting when it talks about uh, using force or more to the point, not using force. So we've noted on the show repeatedly that when it came into office, the Biden administration uh, put into place a process to review the rules governing the use of lethal force outside of areas of active hostilities. This is the PPG or presidential policy guidance discussion. And the PPG is, is a shorthand for a, a complex set of rules that are meant to apply a series of policy constraints on top of what would otherwise be a pretty freewheeling legal claim about using force under color of a combination of the 2001 AUMF and uh, the claim that the law of armed conflict applies. Uh, and, and that's been in place since the Obama administration. And the Trump administration made some changes to it, but in many, many ways uh, kept the general framework in place. So we were told there'd be a two month review, I believe, at the outset of the Biden administration, that two months have, has come and gone. It's turned into, as the story notes, a five months and counting debate. And in Somalia, um, there have been no strikes since then. We're talking 50 or 60 each of the past couple of years, zero since Biden came in office. There were six right before he got sworn in, zero since then. A handful have been approved by the White House, but the facts on the ground haven't enabled anyone to take the shot yet. At least that's stated in the article. And then the article also affirms that there are a number of requests to take the shot uh, or, or to identify someone as targetable that have been rejected. It's not clear whether it was because of particular circumstance or because it was a, a case that wasn't yet uh, strong enough for the particular individual to be targeted. We're also told that some of the ins and outs of the ongoing debate have become protracted because there's just interagency disagreement, or I assume interagency Maybe it's intra-agency, I doubt it though. Uh, interagency debate probably about, for example, uh, whether there should be exceptions to how adult males uh, should be categorized when looking at a scene where there is a high value target who is targetable. 
and there are others around and you're trying to figure out who counts for purposes of the PPG rule that there should be near certainty of no collateral damage. Uh, my understanding is that women and children, if identified as such, trigger that rule, uh, but that at least until recently, adult males uh, were presumed uh, unless demonstrated otherwise, not to trigger that rule if, you, if you're following all the ins and outs here. Anyways, it's just a fascinating insight and it, and it underscores something I begin to wonder about, which is, is it possible that the administration, one possibility is the administration's just hung up on all this and it really is just a protracted interagency debate and eventually it's going to iron out and then you might see more uses of force after that. Another possibility is that the the seemingly temporary suspension of things is actually a very, very clever way of just ending the armed conflict framework for the most part without taking all the abuse that will come with actually saying so directly. Uh, Steve, do you think there's any chance that they actually, like this is the desired end state? Perpetual review and in the meantime, we're limiting the use of force to these to some extremely narrow of high value target scenarios that frankly uh, probably based on their underlying intelligence fact patterns wouldn't require the AUMF at all, but could probably be done under a straight up Article Two national self defense if it's really true what's thought about that particular person. I mean, I'm not sure it's the desired end state. I think it is a stable intermediate state, right? Where where they don't have to expend a lot of political capital on reforms in Congress, where they don't have to sort of provoke a lot of, I mean you know, a lot of backlash as opposed to sort of the normal backlash, um, right, where they don't have to sort of, you know, cause unnecessary foreign relations and diplomatic contretemps. I mean, I just, you know, this strikes me as very consistent with what the Biden administration is doing in any number of other national security spaces, which is sort of keeping its head down, preserving options, keeping head down, spending a little capital. We'll keep an eye on this space. If it turns out six months from now, we're in the same space where, Outside, well, outside of, I guess, Iraq and Syria, uh, force just isn't being used and it's going on a year. At a certain point, you got to think, huh, you know what? They kind of just quietly ended the, the armed right. conflict framing without taking the further additional steps of A, saying so, right. B, tying their own hands in case things change in the future, and C, taking on the litigation consequences that come from actually saying the armed conflict phase is over, which is, you know, at least currently something the administration hasn't said they wanted to do. Now, there is a way to close Gitmo, though. Go say <laughs> that and then just let the litigants uh, cash that out in court. Uh, Seriously. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe that's what we will see. Of course, none of that, if if this is the posture throughout the time of the Biden administration, uh, if whoever comes next of either party wants a different approach, they'll be free, as long as no formal steps have been taken in the meantime, they'll be free to revert to a more active form of counterterrorism. Yeah, it's almost like we haven't learned the lessons of the last you know, four and a half years. Well, maybe it looks to me like what it really looks to me like is that the Biden administration has very much learned the lessons of the prior eight years and has decided <laughs> they are not going to wear a target on their back um, politically for yeah. taking loud decisions in this space. Yep. Um, well, what you want to pivot to the courts? As long as we've referenced the courts once, that might be as good a segue as we're going to get. Uh, you mentioned there's been some Supreme Court activity or or decisions to be inactive. Uh, tell us about that. What's going on? Yeah, I thought there were um, three cert denials today of interest. I mean, the courts obviously been very busy. This is the end of the term. They're going to be they're going to wrap up the 
at least decisions and argued cases from the October 2020 term this week, um, including some stuff that's actually of relevant interest to us. I think some of the separation of powers analyses in like the patent judges case and the FHFA case are actually pretty important. But of more immediate import in our universe, um, there were three big cert denials today. Um, the first two were in um, the sort of the border search cases. So there's this really big and Bobby pretty important circuit split over the scope of the so-called border search exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant clause. Basically, when can the government conduct searches of your stuff at the border um, without having to, any need of individualized suspicion, probable cause. Um, and the government's position has always been that the warrant clause just doesn't apply at all at the border. And so that means they can't, they're entitled not just Bobby to search your belongings, but to conduct forensic searches of electronic devices. Um, and that, as you might imagine, has been where the pushback has been. The Ninth Circuit in an en banc decision from forever ago called Cotterman had basically held that forensic searches are only permissible when you're specifically, when the government's specifically looking for evidence of electronic contraband, um, right? That the they can't just conduct a forensic search for the hell of it. Um, and so in the case at issue, Cano, the Ninth Circuit had gone sort of a half a step further and said basically that like, you know, in general, like border searches of electronic devices can only be when there's some reason to believe there's some electronic device related crime <laughs> um, that's going to be revealed. So so you can't just sort of search the phone because you got it. Um, this is in direct conflict with a First Circuit decision um, in a case called Merchant. Um, where the First Circuit had come out just about exactly the other way. There's also some contrary rulings, Bobby, I want to say from the Fourth Circuit and the Tenth. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the sort of the widespread assumptions that the court was going to take up at least one of these cases, if for no other reason than to resolve the split, and it didn't. That's a surprise. Okay, why, would, why do you suppose they didn't? What, what, what's a good account for why such a clear and seemingly significant split doesn't get taken up? Maybe they're waiting for a little more development. Maybe they don't think there's as much of a tension between these cases. I just, I don't know. I mean, I just, I maybe they just don't want the issue. I mean, because I think the problem is that like the border search doctrine is pretty darn capacious in a context in which, you know, as you well know, the court has really been um, reevaluating, I think, some of the foundations on which it's predicated, right? So, you know, with the, with the Carpenter decision from 2018 and the notion that, you know, the the Fourth Amendment at least has some application to historical cell site location information, that ups, you know, with Riley versus California mm -hmm. um, and the notion that a search incident to arrest does not justify a forensic search of a cell phone, right? Like that upends some of the predicates for the border search doctrine. Is it um, possible, so maybe, yeah. building on that theory, is it possible that what's going on is you've got the justices in the midst of some doctrinal ferment and some relatively new justices and a general sense on everyone's part that they're not, no one's sure who has a majority for what. Yep. And, and no possible. one wants to pick up a case that might run off in a direction they find very unwelcoming in light of that ferment. Yep. I think, I think that's very possible. I just, I'll just say I was very surprised. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other big cert denial today is in Al Shamari, um, a case that has been going on literally forever. Um, so Al Shamari is the last of the remaining um, torture suits arising out of Abu Ghraib. Um, and Al Shamari and a series of other plaintiffs had sued Khaki, um, one of the private military contractors that was responsible for staffing and providing logistical support 
at the Abu Ghraib detention facility, basically claiming that Khaki was, you know, responsible, at least in part, for the torture um, that these detainees claimed that was inflicted upon them. This case has gone up and down, gosh, five times. Um, so the latest, the, the uh, Khaki had taken the latest round up um, on the notion that it was entitled to a form of derivative sovereign immunity. Um, and that unlike the last time it had gone all the way up, that that issue was properly before the Court of Appeals and thus properly before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had sat on that petition, Bobby, forever. And the widespread assumption is that the court was sitting on the petition because of the Nestle case, the alien tort statute case that the court resolved last week, um, where the court said that in Nestle, the court was asked to say that you can never bring uh, an alien tort statute suit against a domestic corporation. If the court had said yes, then that would have nixed the Al-Shamari case. Um, the court didn't quite say yes. In fact, five of the justices specifically said no, um, that there are circumstances where alien tort statute suits against domestic corporations should be allowed to proceed. And so I guess what I'm surprised by, Bobby, is not, the, is not that the court didn't take up the issue that Khaki had presented. I think that was not a cert-worthy issue. I'm surprised that they denied cert as opposed to GVRing, granting, vacating, and remanding in light of Nestle. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I guess I share your surprise in that. Um, any further? I, I, I mean, to me, that's a good sign. Then? I, mean, I think to me, it's a good sign. Like it doesn't. It this. It does not preclude Khaki from arguing in the Fourth Circuit that Nestle requires the Fourth Circuit to revisit its prior analysis and throw out the case. But I also think that there are really good arguments that the exact kind of case that Nestle leaves open is Al-Shamari, right? right? Where you have a, a U.S. corporation where a, lot of, where, where a lot of the decisions were made in the U.S. where, you know, the other thing that separates Al-Shamari from the other cases, all of the underlying torts took place on U.S. military bases overseas, not on foreign sovereign soil, right? So I guess this special, is that special maritime and territorial jurisdiction? It is. Or is it, yeah. it is. 18 U.S.C. 7. SDMJ. Um, so, so I think, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's, um, I, this allows the case to continue to go forward. I think it's actually quietly a pretty darn big win for the plaintiffs in that case. Very interesting. Well, and I guess, uh, if you think it's a little bit surprising for them to get that big win, maybe that's why it's the quieter, less directive and yes. more subtle, just cert denied. Uh, I guess we're going to find out eventually. Yep, but so here's a cert denial because it's an inter because it's in an interlocutory posture. Uh, kids, interlocutory meaning not yet final, um, right? The denial is not the end of the case; it actually just allows things to go forward. Exactly. So. All right. Well, so eventually the questions may come back to the court, and we'll find out if they if they Indeed. meant for it to go a certain way. Gosh, um, this case. Uh, should we pivot to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces? If we must. We must, although I know it's bittersweet for you. So Begani did not go your way. Can you remind everybody um, the retiree court-martial jurisdiction issue here, uh, you know, how this relates to Larrabee and all the rest and what happened? So um, as, as folks who have listened to this podcast before probably know, um, I've been involved over the last three and a half years in litigating the question of whether it's constitutional. You might be able to, by the way, hear Roxy. She's snoring in the background. Um <laughs> 
at Roxanne and the Pug. Um, so we've been involved in litigating the question of whether it's constitutional for the military to court-martial retired service members for offenses they commit after their retirement. Um, believe it or not, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces hasn't actually considered this question since 1989. <laughs> um, and no Article Three appellate court has considered it since 1964. Um so the, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in the Bagani case agreed to take up at least that question after we had won in the district court in Larrabee in a collateral action. Um, and we argued it in March, and the decision came down on Thursday. Um, and the court ruled five to nothing that um, basically retiree jurisdiction is fine. Um, and, you know, I think there are sort of – there's Chief Judge Stuckey's majority opinion, which I think is pretty – how do I say – um, cryptic. Um, and then there's Judge Mags's three-judge concurrence, which makes me wonder, like, if it's a three-judge concurrence, isn't that also a majority opinion? But um, <laughs> So Stuckey's concurrence basically frames it as a sort of question of whether they should overrule their prior precedent and basically says, like, you know, there aren't good enough arguments that we should overrule our prior precedent. Um, that um, retired service members continue to receive pay, that the purpose of the reason why they receive pay is to create this, is to continue the connection with the military, um, that they remain subject to recall, um, that, you know, we shouldn't be troubled by the notion that Congress has very broad criminal jurisdiction over retirees, because after all, Congress has pretty broad criminal jurisdiction over everybody. Um, I found that that especially interesting as a line of reasoning. So it's a pretty sort of, um, he treats it as basically fairly sort of open and shut. Um, the concurring opinion by Judge Maggs um, goes a little further and spends a lot of time on the sort of originalist question. We had actually briefed in some detail um, the question of the original understanding. Um, mind you, the government had not. Um, and so Mags goes out of his way to say, hey, you know, look, the plaintiffs, the, 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 the appellants actually paid attention to this and good for them without bothering to note that the government said nary a word about the original understanding. And then he spends a good chunk of time trying to explain why he thinks the original understanding does not support our position, something I find more than a little curious since there was no such thing as retired service members until 1861. Hmm. Um, but uh, a loss is a loss. Well, um, I, I hate to bring up your other cases, but uh, do you want to say a few words about Sutherland Springs? Oh, I guess, if I must. Uh, let me just say one more thing about Bagani. So so that's the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Um, in theory, Bagani now has 150 days from that decision to decide whether he wants to petition for cert in the Supreme Court. Um, unlike Larrabee the first time, um, the government wouldn't have any argument here that the Supreme Court lacks jurisdiction because CAF decided the thing. Yeah. So um, I would say there's a good bet there's a cert petition coming down the pike in that. Okay. Um, we also, speaking of Larrabee, Larrabee is still going in the D.C. Circuit. The government's appeal remains pending. The, um, the, the, the briefs are all in, and so the next thing is for the D.C. Circuit to set an argument date, and that'll probably be in the next couple of weeks, and the argument will be probably sometime this fall. That's a good thing um, you don't have much to do with your time this summer. Right, right. <laughs> um, so the, the, um, the Sutherland Springs case really has very little to do with this podcast, but I'll just briefly note it. So this is a case that I'd argued before the Texas Supreme Court back in October. Um, and the question was whether victims of the Sutherland Springs church shooting um, could sue Academy uh, Sports. Academy Sports is a sporting goods store. Um, 
on the ground that Academy had violated federal law to wit the Federal Gun Control Act when they sold the shooter in the Sutherland Springs shooting um, the gun that he used in the shooting. Um, and the argument that, that Academy had broken federal law is that the shooter, Devin Patrick Kelly, had presented himself as a Colorado resident. And under federal law, a gun seller, if someone presents as an out-of-state resident, has to ensure that the sale complies with the law of both the seller state and the buyer state, hmm. um, right? Because we don't want we don't want yeah. people to sort of go across the lines. And, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so the Texas Supreme Court on um, so the, re- the reason why the whole case turns on whether Academy violated federal law is because there's a federal statute called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act or PLACA um, that basically gets rid of state tort suits um, against the gun industry unless the suit is predicated on some underlying legal violation by the defendant, right? That you can't just sue the gun industry for negligence or for vicarious liability or for other sort of common law, but not criminal, right, theories. Um, And so whether this federal statute applied to bar the claims in this case turned on whether Academy in fact violated federal law. Um, The federal government's taken the position that Academy did violate federal law. The Texas Supreme Court ruled eight to nothing that no, in fact, it did not. So- Yay. Uh, sounds like a tough week. Sorry to hear it. Yeah, it was, it was, I'll just say this one, one editorial comment. I was, I was not surprised the way that the argument went in Bagani, um, that we were, you know, five, nothing in Bagani did not surprise me, um, because that's the way the argument went. And indeed major, major Wiggins who argued for the government did a great job. And I think, you know, that's where that was going. I, 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 I at least, Bobby, misread the, the Academy argument, the Texas Supreme Court. I thought it had gone really well. I huh. thought I had seen at least a couple of justices who were, you know, asking the right questions of both sides and clearly seemed to understand our position and, in fact, even be sympathetic to it. So I was a little more surprised that that was 8 nothing, given how the argument went. But it just reinforces the old saying that, you know, you shouldn't assume that the arguments are a bellwether of how the court's going to rule. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting practice tip there. Indeed. All right, shall we pivot to a quick little National Security Division roundup and then- Do you want me to say a quick, quick word about the 10th Circuit? Oh, right. Yes. Oh, I, for, I forgot about American Samoa. Uh, I know you are an aficionado of, <laughs> of American territories and uh, the legal complications that arise that uh, from the existence of, of aforesaid territories. What's going on with uh, citizenship status in American Samoa? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the reason why I think this is of relevance to us, Bobby, is because it's a chance to revisit the insular cases, right? Which, of course, loom large in con law vis-a-vis national security. So um, American Samoa is one of six federal territories, if we include D.C., that is populated. um, And it is the only one that does not either by constitutional dictate or statute um, confer birthright citizenship upon anyone born there, right? So if you're born in Texas or you're born in Guam, right, either way, you are entitled to U.S. citizenship. Um, American Samoa is the exception. And so there have been these two cases in the last six years where that's been challenged. Um, one culminated in a 2015 decision by the D.C. Circuit, a case called Tuawa, where a unanimous D.C. Circuit panel, in an opinion by Judge Janice Rogers Brown, Um, held that, in fact, the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment does not apply to American Samoa, sort of relying upon the old distinction 
that the insular cases drew, these turn of the 20th century Supreme Court decisions that had drawn this distinction, Bobby, between incorporated territories and unincorporated territories. And the idea was that if you were incorporated territory, you got the full constitution. And if you were an unincorporated territory, we have to go provision by provision. And what Um, were the formal hallmarks of incorporation versus lack of incorporation? So this all traces to a concurring opinion by, I think it was Chief Justice White, right, in Downs versus Bidwell, if memory serves. But it basically reduced to, was the territory, quote, destined for statehood, unquote, Mm. or not? Um, One of the critiques of the insular cases that has persisted down the years is that this was thinly veiled racism, that the the line between incorporated territories and unincorporated territories just so happened to map pretty neatly onto territories with white majorities and territories with non-white majorities. But, um, you know, there's a there's a Supreme Court case from, is it last year or two years ago, where the court went out of its way to sort of, you know, tisk at the insular cases and suggest that maybe those are of a different era. And so what's striking to me about the Tenth Circuit case from you know, two weeks ago, the 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 decenter case from 2015 is Bobby. They wrapped themselves in the logic of the insular cases, right? They really like it's not it's not a these are not modern decisions. These are you know we have no warrant to depart from what the Supreme Court instructed 120 years ago, and I think that that's not correct. I think that's not consistent with what the Supreme Court has said in recent cases. Um, Do you mean in the sense that you think that insular cases, the insular cases have been eroded in their doctrinal or theoretical foundations? Or are you saying that sheer age and antiquity of the decision? No, no, no. I'm not arguing for for, for destitute or destitute. No. Um, I think what it is, is that the insular cases have been so forthrightly criticized by contemporary commentators and indeed by plenty of the justices that they shouldn't be extended. And the one thing that can't be denied is that there's no insular case decision that specifically speaks to the citizenship clause. Um, and Bobby, you know you, you know this, but just for our listeners' sake, the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment was specifically enacted to overrule and textually repudiate Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Where one of the issues, as you well know, territory, yeah, was was the effect of Dred Scott being in the Minnesota Territory on whether he was entitled to citizenship, and so you know the notion that the citizen, just leaving aside the layers of doctrinal complexity, right, the notion that a constitutional provision that was written specifically to repudiate a decision that rested in part on these kinds of distinctions should be interpreted to reinforce these distinctions is to me deeply problematic. Very interesting. All right. Um, I'm glad we went that, into that because that's that, that said, I don't think the court's going to grant cert. So there we go. Yeah. So there's that. So I guess <laughs> the, does this, so the presidential aspirations of uh, people from American Samoa Seriously. take a blow here. But presidential aspirations. I mean, uh, Congressional, like you can't run for the house, right? I mean, like you know, you're not. A, I mean, the, I guess I guess you could naturalize and run for the house. Anyway, yeah, yeah, the, I think birthright's just the presidency, but still, yeah. All right, um, let's take a quick tour through the national security division, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because the, the the things I want to highlight, uh, a couple of them have a thematic relationship to our airstrike story that we began with, because they uh, have connections to Kataib Hezbollah. Um, the first is the uh, news of a sentence for uh, a woman who was 
convicted for giving national defense information to Hezbollah. This is this is a really disturbing story. We've mentioned it previously. Uh, the woman uh, Thompson was a contract linguist at a DoD facility uh, downrange. Uh, she had, um, I, I think, she was basically a translator, uh, and she was communicating online somehow, some way. She got somebody from Hezbollah got in touch with her and managed to strike up an online video chat based relationship, uh, and it was it was a, a romance play. She developed a romantic interest in this person, the, 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 what I would call a case officer who was recruiting her as an asset successfully. And then this, this is where we get back to uh, Katit Hezbollah. Let me back up. I've made this confusing. Uh, we, we have reason to think that the person who recruited her, the case officer, this was regular Lebanese Hezbollah, right? Uh, but what was going on was that uh, Thompson was working with the special operations team that was uh, critically involved in supporting the airstrikes in Iraq in 2019 uh, against Kataib Hezbollah and the January 2020 strike that killed uh, Soleimani, which we talked about earlier. And in the aftermath of this, the case officer, the the guy from Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, asked Thompson to help them out by basically, you know, can you can you get us information on what human assets may have helped the United States target Soleimani? And she did her best to help. She provided uh, dozens of files, the true names of human sources. Lord knows what deaths she might have caused in doing that. In any event, uh, she was eventually arrested uh, in February 2020, and uh, now she's got a 23-year sentence. It's a really sad and terrible story. Uh, Then secondly, uh, a few days before that, DOJ announced a big asset seizure of websites, 33 websites uh, leased out by an American company that owned the domains, leased out to the Iranian Islamic Radio and Television Union, which, uh, according to Treasury's OFAC, Office of Foreign Assets Control, uh, that is a uh, specially designated national under the sanctions regime, IRTVU is. It's owned or controlled by the uh, Iranian IRGC. What I always forget is it Islamic, uh, the Republican Guard Corps, the Quds Force in particular. Is it, uh, is it, is it, this is Revolutionary Guard Forces, right? Or yeah, it, yeah, yeah, Iran, okay. Iran Revolutionary Guard. Right, I just got my Iraq yeah. and my Iran conflated. Boy, yeah. can you tell I'm getting tired? It's been a long show. Um, we all? And so there were also three websites uh, being used by Kataib Hezbollah, KH. So all those got seized and just kind of interesting to see that. Last case I want to mention, I don't think we talked about this before. I could be wrong, but this one's really interesting. Um, U.S. versus Valensas, V-E-L-E-N-T-Z-A-S. Valensas and Asia Siddiqui were co-defendants, both now uh, convicted and sentenced. Uh, Valensas just got a 16-year sentence. Uh, Siddiqui got a 15-year sentence about a year ago. Um, and the charge of conviction was, quote, teaching or distributing information pertaining to the making and use of an explosive, destructive device or weapon of mass destruction in furtherance of a planned federal crime of violence. So both of them convicted, I think that's 18 U.S. Code uh, Section 842P. There's a million subparts to, to 842. I'm not going to get entirely down into the weeds of it. It's, yeah, P2A, actually. Um, it's interesting whenever an offense includes the words 
teaching or distributing information. Um, and so I looked into it a little bit just to see whether in this case uh, there was any uh, litigation before the before the, the plea agreements, which I assume is how she was convicted here. There was an attempt by both uh, Valensas and Siddiqui about a year and a half ago to get the counts dismissed on various uh, vagueness and overbreath grounds. Um, they went nowhere. And the only thing the court really said, it was a district court opinion. All I really had to say about the teaching and distributing information count was to really double down on the idea that, look, it's not just teaching and distributing information in general, like chemistry, because this is all about how to make bombs is, is what the charge was. Um, it, it was not just in general. It's because uh, it was linked specifically to uh, use the results in a federal crime of violence. And that's what uh, preserved this from being a potential First Amendment problem. There wasn't a lot of meat to that analysis, so I don't have anything to re report there. Uh, the only other thing that's interesting to note is they weren't teaching other people. The two of them were co-conspirators. And the idea is that whenever they each looked up something, because they were doing all this stuff to learn about making bombs, whenever they shared something with each other, they were engaging in cross-teaching in effect. Um, I guess that's a fair, inter I think that is a fair interpretation of the statute, but there is something a little funny in within the context of the conspiracy. Um, I, obviously, the paradigm would be a situation where you have sort of your classic bomb maker type who's who's not going to be the one directly involved in the plot, but is, is equipping other people with the know-how to do it. This isn't quite that paradigm, which makes it feel a little bit funny, although I do think it's fairly within the scope of the law in the end. Um, so anyways, that's Valenza's uh, pretty interesting development. And with that, Steve, I think we've run the traps on all of our substantive topics. True. Uh, but that leaves baseball. And so friends, if you don't want to hear about the sports ball, thanks for and being here. And my road there. trip. And, and yes, do, stick around for the road trip. That might be worth some baseball talk. <laughs> um, so Steve... Pitchers are like disrobing on the field. Their belts are flying off. Like a, I, I don't even know what it's like. Um, what's going on? What do you make of all these, the, the rule change about in, uh, cracking down on pitchers, putting foreign substances on balls? Do, you do we have an epidemic of cheating by the pitchers? And is Major League Baseball handling it right? And are the pitchers overreacting when they do these flashy sort of disrobings whenever some umpire has the temerity to come out to the mound to do an inspection? That was, those are a lot of questions. Um, yeah, which is it? Yes, yes, no. So maybe, listen, EA. cheating, cheating is cheating is to baseball as as apple pie is to the United States, right? Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> as long as there's been baseball, there's been cheating in baseball. Um, there, there, there are pit, there's a pitcher in the Hall of Fame who made his career throwing spitballs, right? I mean, like, you know, the the, the I, I think I think if offense weren't down league-wide if the overall like numbers weren't quite as pitcher friendly we wouldn't be seeing this but i think baseball as it is wont to do is worried about the competitive advantage having tilted too heavily in favor of one direction um and this is their way of trying to to once again level the playing field one direction is or was a great band so i understand that concern um <laughs> Do, do you like me some Harry Styles? But so why don't they just, I think it's pretty clear that the balls are pretty dead. Is it a more comprehensive solution here to do, or is it, is it actually physically too hard mid season to try to get the factories to churn out some slightly uh, jumpier balls? So, I mean, I think a couple of things, 
I have some strong news about this. I don't think jumpier balls is the solution. That's a weird sentence. Um, because because the, you have to hit the ball first, right? And and you know the spin rates are insane. And so you know all you're going to do if you liven the ball without going after the pitcher's bobby is you're going to increase the three true outcomes. You're going to have more strikeouts and more home runs, right? And and that's bad, I think, in both directions. So I hadn't looked into this, but I take it from what you're saying that the data does support either there's been a remarkable recent improvement overall across major league pitchers, yeah. um, in particular in their technique, yeah, or there's a uh, there's been a dissemination of some technique or set of techniques for gumming up the ball a bit. So I think I, I think part of it also though is that I mean this is I think I'm trying to remember who. Someone was someone's um, Peter Moylan, who was a left-handed Australian reliever for the Braves for a long time, and is now I think their color guy, had this fantastic um, um, breakdown of this, and and the the video got really wide circulation on the internet. The problem is that the balls have become slicker, right? And so it's not necessarily Bobby so much that pitchers are innovating in ways that they never have before. It's that without these sort of desperate measures, they're unable to control the ball the way that they used to, right? That and so and so the sort of like there is a problem with the ball, but the problem is not that it's dead. The problem is that it's slick. Um, so does that mean there's been a change of materials or something in the manufacturing process? Not only is the ball deader than right. before, but it's slicker and harder to get friction on the surface of it. Maybe, but the other thing, I mean, listen, I was a pitcher, right? And so how slick a ball is is really a big deal. I, I will just say this is where I think baseball, I don't understand why baseball doesn't just go after that, even if you can't change the ball. You know, Bobby, one of the things I think folks don't realize is before every game, right, the balls for that game get rubbed up with mud. Um, and, and baseball has never standardized the rules for the mudding of the balls. And I just don't know why baseball doesn't just invest in, you know, a standard supply chain for the mud, a standard regimen for mudding up the balls. Like, I mean, you know, that's, it's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. I had no idea. I mean, I knew that I knew about the humidor in Colorado and all the rest, but that's, that's bonkers. Um, okay. So who are the pitchers who are most, who's going to lose value in the second half of the most relative to their first half performance, assuming they really do aggressively enforce. I don't know because I mean I don't I'm not inclined to accuse people of cheating. I think you know it will be fascinating, Bobby, to go back at the end of the season. I mean they just for the, they ejected the first pitcher yesterday, right? For for finding stuff, it was a Mariners pitcher. I think it'll be interesting to go back at the end of the season and see whose numbers tailed off starting at the end of June. Um, and I think the 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 devil will be in the spin rates and yeah, in the right. details. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, but, that's just it. Like they can, I assume they're tracking spin rate basically yes. every game. So yes. That will be the the truest indicator. So but you know who they did not catch? Hmm. Jacob Degrom. No, that's right. They they did they go out and inspect him though? Yes, three times. He was the first. He was the just not not on purpose. Just uh, the fluke that was the fact that the Mets played the first game on the first day that they were enforcing the policy, and the Mets were home meant that Degrom was the first pitcher who was inspected under the new policy, and he passed. And he's still a monster. Although he did give he's up just, two I mean, runs. He's superhuman. Yeah. Yes. I mean, imagine the world in which the fact that he gave up two earned runs over, you know, six quality innings is actually somehow like, you know, a disastrous start for him. Right, here's a question. If he, can, if he can continue this throughout the year, obviously Cy Young, 
MVP as well, especially if the Mets. Absolutely. If he he has the best pitching season in history. If he has the best pitching season in history, he is the runaway National League MVP. As long as as long as he gets enough starts and qualifies for the, you know, if if he ha- ends up with an ERA anywhere close to Bob Gibson's, he's the MVP. Yeah, I guess I guess depending on how the Padres go and how Fernando Tatis Jr. holds but up. But Tatis, I mean, Tatis is having an amazing year, but I don't even think I don't even think he's the lead right now among offensive players. Like I. I I think if the season ended today, Bobby, you know, the the guy in the National League with probably the strongest case for MVP, you know, the position player with probably the strongest case for MVP, um, you know, is Ronald Acuna. Um, I mean, maybe yeah, Tatis is right does, behind he him. Doesn't get the, he doesn't get the attention. I, I'm not 100% sure why. It's, uh, he, he certainly has earned it. But, I mean, I think, you know, the, the Braves are not looking like they're going to be a playoff team. The Padres are. I mean, Tatis could end up running away with this thing if yeah. DeGrom, you know, comes remotely back to earth and the Padres continue to do well. I mean, Tatis is a beast. No, no, and he's, yeah, and he's he's got a lot of sizzle, and that matters in this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, in the American League, uh, does... By the way, do you know, do you know, do you know the one great baseball trivia question to which his father is the answer? The, uh, didn't he have some funny thing, like, Striking out from both sides of the plate, or something like that. Uh, he is the only major league player ever to hit two grand slams in one game. That's it. Yeah. But wait, it gets better. He did it in the same inning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, that that's right. I remember that. Fernando Tatis Sr. hit two grand slams in an inning. The in apple one inning. does not fall far from the tree. Uh, American League Shohei Otani uh, MVP. I he can't think be Cy so. Young, but but MVP. I mean, you know, it's him or Vladdy Jr. Yeah, that's a tough race. I mean, there is again to sort of go back to your point about the historic nature of what's going on here. To have to have this kind of two way success, it's. I really mean, the, cra- right, the crazy part is that, like you know, Vlad Junior is currently. I don't think he's the triple crown leader, but he's leading. Yeah, he's second in the AL in hitting, but he's he's second in hitting, first in home runs, first in RBIs. Yeah, but Otani's only one homer behind him. Exactly, one, and he's behind. pitching. And he's, he has 25 homers and he's pitching. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's awesome. I'm, I'm endlessly delighted because he's on my fantasy baseball team. So uh-huh. I've been paying close attention all along. Um, okay, you've got a road trip coming up. I so do. how do you pass the time on a cross-country road trip, Steve Vladek? Um, We'll find out tomorrow. Um, you don't have plans? You're not going to – you'll have a plan. Well, so I'm, 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 I've scheduled a bunch of phone calls. I made a new playlist, uh, a full playlist of, uh, of, mu- of, of good music, or at least what I think of as good music. Um, I am testifying I like on Thursday. you post your playlist. I think there's a lot of people that would enjoy uh, sharing your playlist. Um, I'm testifying Wednesday before the um, Presidential Commission on Supreme Court Reform. Oh, you are? Hey, that's cool. Yes. Congratulations. Are you going to do it while you're driving, or are you going to pull over for that one? Pulling over for that one. So <laughs> I'm going to... I actually found a temporary office space in um, in Knoxville. Um, <laughs> you got to do a little work in, in Knoxville as you pass through the other UT. I, I mapped out exactly where I would be right when the when it was time for the hearing. So I'm taking a, a little break from the road to to you know talk about the shadow. Have you have you distributed your testimony yet? I have. It's on the it's on the internet. What's your what's your if you had one thing you hope they'll do or that they'll recommend? Uh, what's that one thing you really hope they'll do? Just that, just that. Um, well, that's a good question. If I had one thing, I mean, the problem is the if I had one thing that the commission would recommend, it wouldn't be about the shadow docket. Um, the you know, I I I think 
the big picture thing that I want the commission to recommend is that things go better historically when Congress is continually engaged in the business of the Supreme Court, in the docket of the Supreme Court, in the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. And then I think Congress's basic abdication of docket control to the Supreme Court in a progressive series of statutes culminating in 1988 is responsible for at least some of the pathologies um, that have resulted. So if there's one thing that I want folks to take away, it's that I really think it is healthier for the separation of powers for Congress to be taking a more active role in policing the court's docket. When you say policing the docket, you're talking about how many cases they're granting, what's which cases the docket. you're not saying like jurisdiction stripping, I assume. No, 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 no. That. To the contrary. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm talking about, I mean, you know, I'm talking, I mean, the Supreme Court, Bobby, by the time this week is over, it will have issued all of its decisions and argued cases for this term. It's probably going to be 55 or 56. Um, that's going to be the second lowest total since 1862. Right, yeah, yeah. only topped by last time, year. It's nuts. It's yes. it's right? ridiculous, especially so when you have I, these circuit splits that they're trying right. insert on. Right. I mean, that's a good example, right? So I would love. I, I, I no. When I talk about docket control, I don't mean keeping cases away from the Supreme Court. I actually mean taking more cases yeah. to the Supreme Court, making the justices work more and work harder, and sort of you know act more like. I mean, my fear is that when they're only deciding fifty cases a year, plus whatever they're doing on the shadow docket, they have all this time to sort of think about, you know, like that they're not sort of, they don't, they don't get focused on the nitty gritty of the case. They want to use each case for like this larger pronouncement. And all these cases, I think that deserve their time, even if they're not of the same national import, get lost in the wayside. That's interesting. All right. Well, good luck with that. What about books on tape or podcasts or, you know, I've never, we'll, we'll see how, we'll see how bored I am by Wednesday afternoon. I've never really been a big books on tape person. Oh. Um, podcast for sure. I will, I will, I will catch up on all my podcasts. Um, but you know, um, call people, um, listen to world, uh, listen to the euros. Cause they're, they're too excited. There, there are some good Euro quarterfinal matches. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I guess you'll probably be able to pick that up. If you have XM radio, somebody will be broadcasting that on my phone. I'll just stream it on my phone. Yeah. 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 yeah of course. Um, um, if you have reception, um, I, in my experience, cell phone reception along the major interstate highways, which is where I will be the whole time, yeah, likely to be pretty good. I, I, I'm speaking from last couple of days driving back from Colorado, and uh, we avoided the interstates as much as humanly uh, possible, and it was awesome, and I loved it. But reception at times was yes. very difficult. Um, so this is, I mean, this is not a, this is not a. Um, see the sites kind of road trip. This is a get there as quickly as possible. Get there. Yeah. Well, uh, be safe. And uh, thank you. I assume you'll have a good remote podcasting setup from. Your, I will. Uh, the, the next time, the next time, we, the next time we do this, I will be at, at Casa, Casa Vladic Northeast. Awesome. Well, uh, needless In to say, Brookshire, uh, if you need Brookshire County, Massachusetts, if you need somebody to check out something at your house, I'll be on neighborhood patrols. I usually am walking around. <laughs> uh, so I'll be happy to pop in. Um, hopefully our dog sitter will, will take care of that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, cool, man. Well, drive safe and thank everybody, you. thanks for listening. And we'll be back, I guess, on the far side. You know, we'll, we'll find some reason to, to do this again either next week or the week after, depending upon how, how circumstances work. Yeah, we'll do a post. I'm sure we'll have something good going uh, post 4th of July. Um, all right. Well, enjoy the 4th, everybody. Stay Likewise. safe out there. Adios.